We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you science, technology, engineering and maths content from the small island, Tasmania. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Sarah Lydon and our content is always recorded and supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on the good things that they're doing. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging and paying my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathered today, Lutruwita. I'd also like to pay my respects to the First Nations people wherever you're tuning in and pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that I stand for a future that profoundly respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language and history. So I'm joined with Dr. Sarah Lydon, who is our engineering specialist, which means one thing, we're probably talking about something engineering related. So Sarah, can you please introduce our guest and what we'll be discussing today? Thanks, Neve. Uh, so today we've got Landon Bannister joining us from Southern Lighting. So Landon has been working in the lighting industry for over 20 years and is passionate about um, advocating concerning light's influence on our physiology and psychology. So Landon is joining us today to talk with us about the idea of human-centric lighting. Uh, so Landon, to start off, can you give us an overview of what human-centric lighting actually is? Um, I guess it's the idea that uh, lighting affects us more than just in a visual sense. So most people are, are very acutely aware if you flick a switch on a wall, light comes on and you can suddenly see. Um, human-centric lighting is the understanding that it actually affects us on a physical level as well and also on an emotional level. Um, people that work in, say, the hospitality industry will probably understand that emotional level well, and, and even on a basic level, Neve, really nice sunny day, um, generally people will be aware that they're actually a little bit happier than they are on an overcast day. Um, really good example of how it affects us on that emotional base. Um, but the physical level is really the interesting one because that's really the simple fact that uh, we're an outdoor species and We've evolved with this uh, diurnal existence of day and night for hundreds of thousands of years and um, in very recent times we've actually removed that, uh, that connection to nature and it's, um, this, this idea of human-centric lighting is, uh, is about essentially replacing that and, and trying to, uh, to get back to where we were. Um, so what attracted you to the area of lighting design? Nothing. No one ever goes into lighting you know, and says, yeah, I'm going to be a lighting person. It just happens. It's one of those really weird industries where everyone you speak to, they just, um, you know, the, the diversity of backgrounds is amazing. Um, anything from architecture, we get a lot of industrial designers, um, people come out of the theatre lighting industry, but of course then we've got engineers, um, even electricians that just get a passion. And it is one of those things, you just sort of fall in love with it when you start to realise um, how much influence it has on people. Um, I mean, we take 80% of our information in visually. It's the dominant sense and lighting reveals that vision. So it's, um, it's super important. So, um, you know, you, you fall into the industry, you, you surround yourself with some amazing people and you, you start to pick these things up and before you know it, you're a lifer and you can't get out. So when was the first time that you, like, came across the influence of light, not only on our emotional state, because I think most of us, like you say, are probably inherently aware that maybe a bit more chipper on a sunny day um you know when did you first come across this physiological interaction between light and people 
Look, I was lucky enough to be working for a company in Melbourne and um, they got bought out by a multinational and the multinational happened to be Swedish. Um, now, Sweden is an amazing hub of information for lighting because they go without it for so long. I mean, their appreciation in, as a, as a, in Sweden compared to what we have in Australia, we have this abundance of light, so we don't really think about it. Over there, it's actually a really precious resource and it's a beautiful place to visit and, and understand and learn about light. Um, but of course, they have these massively long periods of darkness, and uh, you know our physiology with lighting really comes back to you know this idea of twelve hours a day and twelve hours a night, and they go for really really long periods of night. Um, it has some pretty serious health implications, and they have um, obviously seasonal affective disorder and things like that that happen in Sweden, and so they use um, lighting, um, artificial lighting, to try to, if you want. Um, remove some of those symptoms and, and so you start to learn these things from these Swedish companies and, and learn what they are doing in their in their built environment and you just it's just a fascinating uh, field. Um, so in thinking about building design how does lighting kind of um, fit into that process like is it integrated throughout the process or is it something that's addressed after other architectural elements? Yeah I, I would say poorly um, it is it is an afterthought um, <laughs> There's a couple of you know, major problems in that, in that um, obviously we have lighting standards um, you know, for, for engineering purposes, we're designing a building. Um, everything about the way we do our lighting standards is around visual performance and what makes that even worse is visual performance um, based on what we were doing in the 1930s and 1940s because that's when the standards were written. And back then what was important was being able to read a piece of paper on a horizontal desk. So they, you know, they really um, basically wanted to know your near field vision, so your centre vision, didn't worry about anything going on around your peripheral, um, and how much light do you actually need to read a 10-point font and a black text on a piece of white paper? And from there, we're now 80 years later, but but nothing's really changed in the metrics and the way we, <laughs> we think about light, and we know so much more. Um, it's a little bit like having uh, the imperial system in the US. It's just too expensive to change, so no one <laughs> sort of ever gets to it. But um, So, yeah, it's... Um, it, it's sort of problematic. So this this idea of human centric lighting uh, is quite funny because it's not driven by um, government or standards or um, that it is driven by passionate people and architects, but it's also driven by big business um, because we know that these buildings are not healthy, and we know that the way we're lighting these buildings isn't healthy. Um, even this room that we're sitting in now, if we sat here for a long period of time, um, we would eventually become a little bit drowsy because it's so far removed from what we're used to as an outdoor species and we get tired and things like um, our sleep hormone melatonin would start to actually secrete into our body and we'd start to get a bit dozy and we'd stop producing enough cortisol to keep us alert and awake and um, so it has these implications and um, you know business understands this and so it's business is actually driving this idea because if you're running a business the biggest cost you have is actually staff. Now if you have a way you can actually stop your staff from feeling drowsy and keep them more alert and more productive. Well, then that has a direct impact on the bottom line. So it's quite interesting where the uh, where the industry sits at the moment. That's absolutely fascinating. I, ca- I have to say it's something I haven't really given much thought to before, but I'm sure we're going to learn a lot more about lighting design throughout the episode. So stay with us. We'll be talking more to our expert guest, Landon Bannister, in just a moment.
You are listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking about the impact of lighting and lighting design and how we can make that human-centric or focused on the people who are actually using those spaces. We're joined by co-host Sarah Lydon, who's our engineering expert, and this is definitely left field, Sarah. Kudos for picking this topic. And Landon Bannister, who's a um, human-centric design lighting expert. I, I have no title. And there is no expert. It's such a new field. Um, the discovery of the actual scientific link for this only dates back to 2001. So I don't think there's anyone in the world that would put their hand up and say we're an expert in this field. It's quite new science. So I actually have a follow-up question about the scientific credibility from the opening section. So what is the kind of science that we're seeing? Is it observational causative like what kind of studies have given rise to this train of thought so it's sort of something we always uh, knew um, a lot of the science was lost in the the 40s about this idea that light could be used as a drug and, and that's really what we're talking about it is um, it's a drug um, so it has positive benefits it also can be negative benefits um, the real link did, as I say came in 2001 when they actually discovered a receptor in the eye that had a um, pathway that wasn't visual. So we always have these um, ganglion cells in the eyes, but what they found is these things we call intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. They only make up about 1% to 2% of the ganglion cells in the eye, so they're very small in number. Um, but the really interesting thing was they basically produce an opsin melopsin. The signal that they're sending doesn't follow the visual pathway, and this was a really interesting thing. So we just assumed that all light was, was visual fed to the back of the brain um, and so we we have this pathway the retinoid hypothalamic tract it goes to about seven different parts of the brain um, it leads to things like uh, the suprachiasmatic nucleus which is obviously the thing that we get really interested in in terms of um, this diurnal existence because that's the part of the brain that controls your body clock your circadian rhythm so that link was really um, super important and it's really funny, you do a Google search of uh, research on, on light and medicine and you look at 2001 and it was basically non-existent and then there was this massive uh, spike in the type of research that goes on and now um, we sort of have enough evidence now we know that it's um, it's definitely having an influence. What we don't know is that dosage, you know, what's right, uh, what's wrong. Um, you know, we always have theories, but of course then everyone's different because their eyes are all different. We all see the world differently. Um, so it's a really difficult uh, thing to put a finger on, but we know, I guess, in a lot of cases that what we're doing in some rooms, uh, <laughs> point in question, isn't good for people. That's really interesting. And I kind of, the first thing that comes to my mind, I appreciate that that probably wasn't your work in 2001. So, and I've got so many questions about that. Like, how do we map what those cells are and the pathways that they take that information to the brain, and then also um, the structures in the brain that that is received by would link to a cascade of effects either in what hormones are released, what types of fatigue we have, and how much stimulus occurs. So maybe we'll try and find that paper and share it with this episode. So Sarah, what are we specifically getting into in this segment? Uh, so having a bit of a look at some specific lighting projects, um, Landon, we were wondering if you had any interesting examples that you could give us of a lighting project and how um, the human-centric aspects might have been considered or not considered. Um, yeah, I can, I can talk about it. Uh, there was a great research project that the company I worked for um, when I was based in Melbourne were working on in London, um, and it was uh, a Pickhurst primary school 
just outside of London. And uh, what they basically did is, is, again, we had this school that was lit where all this lighting was thrown at the horizontal level and, um, you know, the, the students would sit there and they um, they assessed what the current situation was. They um, basically did two control rooms. They had a ground floor and a first floor and they did two experimental rooms. And they actually increased the light level because our... Australian standards, for instance, call, um, we talk about lighting in the term called lux, uh, they ask for about 300 lux. Now, if you go outside, there's about 10,000 lux on a sunny day, so it, it's quite a lot less. And then we also talk about the direction of that light, uh, we talk about the timing of that light. We know it's really super important to get morning light into the system because that really stimulates that cortisol that alert and keeps you alert and um, active through the day. Um, you know, a good dose of sunlight in the morning for about 30, 45 minutes will stay with you for five to six hours. So it's pretty super important time of the day. And so we tried to replicate those things in this school of, of Pickhurst. And what was really interesting about that particular installation is uh, we had the experimental room. We factored in the sunlight uh, because the kids on the first floor were getting a lot more access to sunlight than the bottom floor. And just without doing anything but those two classrooms, those kids are always happier than the kids on the ground floor um, throughout the year. But the thing that really backed that study up was the fact that the technology at the time for um, tracking melatonin and cortisol through mouth swabs became available. So they're actually able to go into a real-life school, put baselines on everything, and then they had a full-time student, poor bugger, had to stand there with a um, mouth swab and swab 56 students (laughs) three times a day. Um, Consent from the parents, though, was great. Uh, And then they also did emotional um, sort of feedback with the kids, uh, and their parents, you know, well, how are you finding them and are they more alert or more active and less drowsy? Um, and so as a study went over a whole year and it was fantastic that this idea where they had brighter light on the ceilings and the walls, um, and that was the real key, because if you go outside and look around, that's where all your brightness comes from, this big thing we call the blue sky. And then you walk into most buildings and you look for that big blue sky and, and we don't have it. What we have is all this light on a, on a on the ground, which isn't what's natural in the natural world, so... We tried to replicate that, or they did. Um, the data come back, it was the University College of London that was collecting all the data. Um, also Lund University in Sweden were involved. Um, and they actually showed that in the experimental classrooms, the kids were generally happier, uh, their cortisol levels were up, they were producing less melatonin during the day, which is exactly what we want, we don't want it there. Um, and the really pleasing thing is they got to the end of the year, and of course the kids' grades in those classrooms actually had gone up. They're actually going to improve their, their learning. So I thought that was a really good, you know, just practical example of, um, of how good human-centric lighting can improve lives. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting example, particularly for um, from a performance perspective, how we consider, um, particularly, you know, how we could maybe rally resources around lower-performing schools, for example, um, and a design change, if you thought about it from the outside, could actually be quite profound. So you've talked a little bit about horizontal lighting, um, and I've been interpreting that as like what most people would consider when they walk into a room. We've got lots of very strong overhead lighting that projects downward onto the floor or tables. Um, I myself hate overhead lighting. I'm a big person for lamps, um, so, and that kind of gives your more kind of eye level plane of vision lighting. So can you talk through like just some of the basic types of ways that you create different lighting aesthetics? Because there was a, a few different examples that you used there about how, like creating that blue sky effect. Um, how does that differ in the actual practical way that you achieve that? 
So if you think about how you walk around the world, um, unless you're sort of um, very insecure or have depression, you generally don't walk around looking at your feet. You, know, you, you walk around, you actually see everything in a vertical plane. Um, so if you're just sitting where you are at home now and just think about what you're looking at, chances are you can got really good vision of a lot of wall and, and a little bit of ceiling and, and not really the floor. So this idea of um, you know, what people do in their homes with putting in downlights and actually pushing all the light to the floor is just um, ridiculous so on, on many, many levels because uh, it creates um, a very cavernous effect, uh, makes the room feel smaller. Um, so from a perception point of view, it doesn't work. Um, all you're doing is really lighting the top of your head. You're not lighting the vertical surfaces. So you turn on a lamp. And a lamp is um, omnidirectional. Light comes out and goes in all directions. And so you actually get that light onto the wall and light onto the ceiling. Um, it's a much softer light, um, much more natural. Um, also, generally, if you put a light shade, you know, it's, it's a bigger light source, which is, again, like that, that idea of the sky. It's a massive, big light source. Um, and we go and put in these little miniature things that have you know, totally wrong direction and, and don't represent it at all. So... So you'd be doing things like putting in, um, yeah. like there's two ways that we can do that. We could either try and maximise the amount of outside light that's coming in, which is kind of like rule number one, try and do that wherever you can. Um, but then like, how are we artificially trying to create that? So are you like, other than lamps, you know, are you playing around with having wall lighting? I hate mounted wall lights but that's just a personal preference I accept that um or having like even lights coming up from the floor for example like we see that a lot in art installations where lighting technicians will come in and I always love that aesthetic that they create but like I've never seen that in a home or a building for example no it's actually difficult because you've got to control glare um so we're really you know the whole thing about um if we say human-centric lighting it's actually uh, the light has to actually penetrate into the eye and you have to always remember you've got this beautiful uh, protective device, the eye. So if you, you know, it's like when you look in the sun, we squint. Um, it's the same reason you can actually, you know, think about the reason you've got brows, and um, it's, 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 a, it's a glare protection. Um, so we have this inherent problem where we have to remove glare if we want light to enter the eye. Um, and so that's where down lights and in-ground lights can be really problematic in in spaces where people inhabit because once you have glare, the pupil shuts down. That light's not getting in the eye. It doesn't matter what you have. Um, the lighting effect, if you think about light, we actually don't see it. It doesn't exist. So, And this is one of the worst things that, that people don't seem to get. They put all these downlights in, but that light doesn't actually exist until it hits an object. So unless you're standing under a downlight or until it hits the floor, that's when that light suddenly exists. So if you think about that in an efficiency point of view, you're spending all this energy to spend light from three metres up in the thing down to a dark surface. And as I say, we see reflected surfaces. So the darker the surface, the less energy reflects back. So what's really efficient is to find those lighter surfaces and have light travel less distance. So we could just light 20 centimetres onto that wall, which is all white, and that creates apparent brightness, and that is what we see. So that actually helps us. That idea of reflected surfaces is really super important. Okay, so you're playing a lot with the lived environment as well and trying to play off different surfaces. So to be facetious, but also I'm not entirely sure, what are we seeing when we look at a light and we can see the light globe lit, lit up? Is it just reflecting off the light globe? Generally, you're seeing glare. That's <laughs> just glare. It's that not you're a good, Yeah, you've got to really. I mean, it's all about contrast. So if you've got a really, really bright room, you can get away with it. Um, if you put that into a dark room, you're going to blind yourself. Um, so this idea of exposed light sources and things like that has to be really managed about what else is going on in the space. 
And, um, you know, we're, we're very big because, again, standards force us to talk about these numbers that we need and they want us to hit a number. And um, It's really problematic because it's an imaginary number. It's not ref- reflected light. It doesn't talk about the surfaces. And um, what becomes super important is what, what is going on in the world, in the room as a whole. It's a, it's an holistic idea. So um, there's no... Uh, uh, with a bare globe, it's about balancing with everything else that's going on around it at the same time. So in terms of assessing a space then, in terms of the light, you just look at what the light globe is producing as opposed to taking a measurement of the ambient conditions that are occurring in the room? No, look, it, it's all about human use. Yep. It's all about human use. So, of course, if we're lighting a bar, it's a very different um, set of criteria than if I'm lighting a, an office to if we're lighting a hospital. Um, so if you think about a bar, it's used is always during the evening. Um, human need from light is totally different of a night than it is during the day. We need far less of it. Um, we generally prefer much warmer light. We prefer softer light. Um, we prefer low-level light because everything about our conditioning the light of a night, think about how we evolved. What did we do for hundreds of thousands of years? We sat around campfires and we talked. And so that idea of really, really low-level, warm, um, soft lighting is really important. So we we take that idea of how people are using the space and start to apply those really basic principles on a, on a very, you know, um, what happens in nature level to that space. So it's, everything's different. And then you get hospitals, which are multi-faceted. Uh, There's, um, you've got to consider the staff's need, the patient's needs, um, their 24-hour facility. So the light during the day that we need that can make a space really healthy can be really, really bad of an evening. So we can start to do things that we don't want to do. Um, keep people awake, really affect their sleep, um, think about surgery uh, spaces and recovery wards we don't know what time they've come out of surgery but generally speaking their circadian rhythm is out of whack and we can actually use lighting to help entrain them and train that circadian system and get it back in so it, it really is understanding how people use space because there is no other reason to put a light fitting anywhere other than people You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're talking about human-centric lighting and it seems to uh, raise more questions than it answers is this fascinating new emerging field. Uh, my name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Dr. Sarah Lydon along with our expert guest, Landon Bannister. So Sarah, what are we talking about for our final segment? Uh, so now we're going to talk a little bit about um, things like efficiency and sustainability in lighting, but also a little bit about what our listeners at home can take away from this episode. Um, so, Landon, how are factors such as efficiency, resource use and sustainability addressed in the lighting industry? Yeah, we need more light during the day, um, but we don't need it for, for huge amounts of periods. So, as we said, it's really super important is first thing in the morning to get a high dose of light. Now, if you're an office worker, you can't get outside, um, you maybe you know, overcast day in Tasmania, whatever it is, we need a lot more energy than what the government will allow us to use. Um in order to effectively kick that system along the way we'd like it to happen. We don't need as much light, though, after that. So there is always the option to dim the light back down, um, use motion sensors, turn it off when it's not there. So good practice, actually, uh, rules. Um, unfortunately, in Australia, we just do a really blanket thing where we say, oh, it's just watts per square metre. Um, so if you've got a room this big, you're allowed this many watts. And it's a really um, almost archaic way of thinking about energy savings. So... 
um, yeah, it's, it's problematic, I think, in this country and it does need to change. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we've spoken about before was the, the blue light filter apps on phones. Um, <laughs> would you like to explain to our listeners sort of why blue light is an issue in the evenings and also why those apps might not work as people expect? Yes. Look, the, the problem uh, is really a technology issue with LEDs. So most LEDs that you, you, we work with actually start their life as a blue chip. So it's just raw blue light. And we come along and we do all sorts of things in the lighting industry with these phosphors, the same sort of stuff you used to have in fluorescence to turn them into white light. But it doesn't matter how much phosphor we throw at it. We've always got this blue left in the in the light source, um, very high in the in the spectral range of blue. Um, now that blue is actually um, from a circadian response, from a biological response. It's very different from your visual response. Visually, we see yellow light really, really efficiently, um, and most light sources are sort of uh, built that way. Um, but when it comes to actually these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells that we spoke about, they're quite susceptible to blue light. Um, all wavelengths will activate them, but really blue light's the one that really works. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because we've never actually had any blue light sources present during our evening hours. And some people say, oh, but what about the blue moon? And um, Blue moon isn't actually a blue moon, just so you know. The, when we're seeing in moonlight, it is such a low level that you're actually colour vision stops. And we actually start seeing the world in grayscale, which is why we get this idea that it's a blue moon, but it's actually quite a warm light source. And so we've had all these warm light sources during the evening. We've had all these blue light sources during the day. It's the blue light sources that stimulate this circadian system, if you want, this this response from the IPRGCs. When we start adding that into the evening, this blue light, what we're basically saying to our system is it's daytime. And so your system goes, oh, stop producing melatonin. You don't want your sleep hormone, it's daytime. Be alert. Start getting in this cortisol and start, start waking yourself up. And so we actually start to throw our systems out of whack. And that's why there's uh, quite a lot in schools and, and things about not letting your children sit on these tablets because they're lit with LEDs. They're lit with a blue-rich source. Um, and look, hats off to Apple who did bring out that you know uh, warming back screen for your evening use and I use one on my tablet. Um, but uh, they're... There is actually, if you look at the spectral makeup, there's just as much blue when you're using the filter as uh, as when you don't. So it's not actually doing anything. Nothing beats putting the phone down and actually having a little period of uh, low-level light um, before you go to bed and making sure you're actually um, doing what your body wakes. And if you want to wake up really well too, don't use an alarm clock. Just open the blinds and uh, wake up with nature. Um, lots of studies on that and how much... Uh, uh, benefit that has to system. And they do that in a lot of nursing homes now where they actually just have blinds that are automatically opened and um, helps wipe the residents up. Um, they're happier, they're more um, alert, they have less falls, all these wonderful things you get just from waking up with what nature gave us rather than this uh, introduced technology. That's absolutely fascinating. So that's all we've got time for today. Thank you to Sarah for preparing such an interesting episode. Thank you to Landon for being such an excellent guest and thank you for listening. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.